You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Live from the California Copyright Commission, experts go on the record online. Go to the People's Republic of China and you can gate the internet. And if you don't think that that's the future, you're wrong. One. Two. Wait, expand on that for a second. Well, because you can gate the internet. It can be done. Uh, the internet is an interconnected set of grids. And you can stop that grid. You can find spots in the grid and stop it, and you can block content. They do it in China. They do it very effectively. They do it in Saudi Arabia with respect to all pornographic sites. Yeah, but we have this freedom of speech thing here. That I understand that, but you're talking, about, you're talking about international models. I'm just providing you with an international model. It's called Your Content Don't Come Here. Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of On the Record Online. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story uh, through in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, um, influential bloggers, podcasters, uh, and other experts about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the business of media as we know it. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, PR guy by day, podcaster by night. I am also founder and president of iPressroom Corporation, and that's a software company that makes it easy for you to integrate the web into your marketing communications initiatives. I am also personally and professionally interested in how technology and the internet is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. Um, Today we have a special episode of uh, the show. We recorded a panel conversation uh, that happened on November 8th. Uh, The subject was podcasting, and it was the California Copyright Conference's uh, annual, uh, I'm sorry, monthly meeting. Uh, On the panel were Anthony Bruno. He covers um, digital... uh, um, the digital beat at Billboard, the uh, music industry trade publication, uh, Bob Lefsitz of the Lefsitz Letter. You can get that by sending an email to lefsetz at aol.com. He sends out a uh, fairly frequent email uh, about um, developments in the music business and particularly how the music industry is responding uh, to the challenges posed by the digital distribution of files over the internet or not. And there were also a couple of attorneys um, who I'm really sorry to say I, I don't have their names. I went to the California Copyright Conference's website and uh, there's nothing listed uh, on there. Um, if you click on November 8th podcasting uh, conference, there's nothing there. So I apologize to both of them. They were both very well spoken on the issues, as I think you'll hear in the podcast. I uh, had a lot to say about it, and I found it to be very informative. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, um, some of the past guests uh, who have participated include... John Markoff, he is a technology reporter for the New York Times. Uh, Chris Marlowe, she is the uh, 
executive editor, I'm sorry, editorial director over at the Howard Reporter, and she covers the convergence of technology and entertainment. Um, we have uh, we recently did a one-hour interview with Alex Ben Block. He's the former editor of the Hollywood Reporter and Television Week. Uh, we have spoken with uh, Ron Bloom. He is the CEO and founder of Podshow.com. Leo Laporte of This Week in Tech, the most downloaded podcast uh, in the world, according to Apple iTunes. Uh, we have spoken to Rob Barrett, who is the general manager of LA Times Interactive, and he is responsible for their blogs and their podcasts and all their new media initiatives. Uh, we have also spoken with Nick Wingfield of the uh, Wall Street Journal, Elizabeth Wees of USA Today, Chris Taylor of Time Magazine, Brad Stone of Newsweek, Chris Null of Mobile Technology, David Satterfield of the San Jose Mercury News. So if you're interested in what these uh, people have to say about how technology is changing the business of media, you can subscribe to the feed at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. Uh, next up on the show... Uh, you can download a one-hour uh, live podcast that was produced from the Portable Media Expo and Podcasting Conference. Uh, that was November 11th and 12th in Los Angeles, California. Actually, Ontario, California, to be specific. And you can get a, uh, a, um, a virtual impression of what went down at the show. Uh, so I hope you have a chance to listen to those. Uh, and again, you can get them by subscribing to the feed at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. If you have suggestions or comments for people who you'd like to hear on the show, uh, we welcome them. Uh, in fact, we encourage them. Um, so uh, all you have to do to get those to us is uh, you can post a comment to the blog at www.ontherecordpodcast.com or uh, you can call the comments line. Uh, if you're outside of the U.S., plus one, uh, 206 202-4805. We do play the audio comments on the show, so if you leave one, uh, be advised that uh, it may wind up in a future podcast. Thanks so much for um, for listening, and uh, now I'm going to play for you uh, this audio uh, transcript from the California Commission, the the California Copyright Conferences podcasting conference. Keep in mind, um, I recorded this using an omnidirectional mic directly beneath a, f a speaker in the ceiling. So it's not going to be the best quality. And I recorded it on the Marantz PMD 660. Uh, the folks at Marantz sent me one over because I actually worked with them, um, represented them at the podcast expo. And um, so I had that with me and I got to uh, record uh, this directly to Compact Flash on that device, which is a quite popular device. So you'll get a chance uh, to hear what it sounds like. And we're going to play the, um, it for you entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Our November meeting, Attack of the Pod People, a look at the short history and rapidly evolving future of podcasting. Thanks for coming here tonight. I am... Uh, <laughs> a father of three, so I'm used to watching things sprout up very quickly. Uh, 
but podcasting has taken the, even my sensibilities by surprise. I think it was maybe less than a year ago that I first even heard the word. Um, in that very short amount of time, there are thousands and thousands of podcasts out there. And there are a lot of people, even in the business, who still don't even really know what a podcast is, which is one of the first things that we'll address when we, when we get to this. But already, not only can you go to podcastalley.com and look at you know the 50 or 100 most popular podcasts, there are between five and 10,000 podcasts registered at podcastalley.com. I didn't know that podcastalley.com was even a website until a couple of days ago. Um, this Saturday, I learned today, in Ontario, California, will be the first annual podcast expo. <laughs> Who knew? So, so this is this is a, a, a real phenomenon to be dealt with, and um, I'm really happy to have the people that we have here to talk about it because I certainly don't know all that much. To my right is Anthony Bruno. Anthony got his BA from the University of Wisconsin in Madison in journalism, became a freelance travel journalist based in Colorado for a while, has been an editor of various community newspapers and a senior writer with RCR Wireless News out of Denver. Um, he has also been the Assistant Vice President of Wireless Internet Development at CTIA, the Wireless Association. But as of this year, he has joined Billboard Magazine as an editor covering the digital and mobile entertainment beat, including things like downloads, MP3 devices, uh, ringtones, P2P, and of course, podcast, Anthony Bruno's. The guy with the tie, who is the only panelist up here that I've actually met before tonight, is Josh Waddles. Josh started his career as an in-house counsel at ASCAP. Uh, subsequently, he was deputy and acting general counsel at Paramount Pictures, which is where I know Josh from when I worked there. I came to appreciate Josh both for his sharp mind and his propensity to speak truth to power, which is not a quality that's always rewarded at a place like Paramount Pictures. Um, <laughs> He's the past president of the LA Copyright Society, currently is an attorney representing uh, several tech-centric entertainment companies, including several that are involved in podcasting. He endeared himself to the uh, record and publishing community, I think, when he filed an amicus brief on behalf of uh, P2P services and developers in the MGM versus Grokster case, and is uh, also an internet entrepreneur and an adjunct law professor at Southwest and Loyola Law Schools. Yeah. Joshua Watts. So having got somebody who reports on podcasting for like the major trade and an attorney who knows all the issues in podcasting, I thought it might be cool to actually have a podcaster on the panel. Enter Bob Lefsetz to my immediate left. Bob uh, went to law school, he says, because he was down and out for a while and practiced for about 10 minutes, but um, uh, for a while ran the U.S. Office of Sanctuary before becoming you know, what he is today, which is a, a, a podcaster and columnist. You can find him in uh, Encore as well as his own Lefsetz letter, which you can subscribe to for free, by the way, at lefsetz.com. It's L-E-F-S-E-T-Z.com. He podcasts for Rhino Records, and you can go to rhino.com and access that podcast for free. And now having read and listened to Bob uh, quite a bit since he, be, since he agreed to be on this panel, I can tell you that his, um, 
his podcast and his writings are fun, very opinionated, and um, well, you always know where he stands. And I'm really happy to have him here. Uh, Bob Vestas. When I said to Anthony on the phone, I think the first question I'm going to ask Anthony is, you know, tell us what a podcast is. Is that dumb? Because I still, I think that there are going to be people here, despite our stature and, and presence in the industry, who don't really know. Uh, Anthony was, was kind enough or polite enough to say, no, that's not a dumb question at all. So I'm going to ask him. Um, tell us what a podcast is, how it differs from other MP3 files, and, um, you know, just Thank you. Um, well, a podcast is basically is an MP3 file. This is a matter of how it's delivered. This is an interesting mic. <laughs> Problems we are in. Um, basically, a podcast is uh, a audio file that can be automatically that you can subscribe to and automatically downloaded and waiting for you on your computer when you check in on a regular basis. It can be sent to you play it on your computer or can play it on your uh, on your MP3 player, whether it's an iPod or whatever else you want to have. The, it, it uses a technology called RSS, Real Simple Syndication, which is um, just an audio version of that, so that when you, when you get, uh, some, someone can publish their own their own talk show, their own radio program, whatever it might be, or, or a commercial radio station can keep a tape of that and have it available so that when it's, uh, when it's available for download, it's just automatic push, it's like a subscription. It goes, it, it's, it goes to your computer, it's a difference between going to the corner and getting your newspaper versus opening your door and having it there waiting for you. It doesn't require a whole lot of effort. That's one way of putting it. I'm sure there's three or four different examples or, or explanations of what a podcast is on this panel. There's a guy well. big here who's been in TV called Adam Curry. Like every DJ was ever on that, he got fired. And usually you never hear of him again. They're tired of where he came from. And this guy became the tech expert. And you hear like, he doesn't talk about And then he writes this little tiny piece of software where he can deliver the podcast to your iPod. Anyone that's sophistication knows you can do that yourself. Let's go back to the beginning. You have a digital file, referred to as an MP3. If you have a Mac and you click on a podcast on anybody's web page, it will come up in quick time and play just on your computer. If you have a Mac, you want to hold down, you have a mighty mouse, the right button, a regular mouse, you hold down the option key, and you can download it. You can then import it to iTunes. It's just like having a song. Forget the whole machinery of iTunes and copyright protection all that you It's a fire. And what happened was Adam beat the drum so heavily that Apple Computer decided that they would have a leg up on everybody else by distributing the podcasts. And therefore, they don't really need the technology of the little programs that Adam wrote would be built in. Unlike all the music that's conventionally on iTunes, there's nothing stored on the Apple server. It is purely a link. If you have the latest version of iTunes, well, they started uh, distributing podcasts in June via iTunes. You go and you can literally search podcasts. You subscribe to something. It automatically is downloaded. It will show the left, left pane of your iTunes video. If you do not have iTunes on your computer, you should leave right now because this is really where the business is. As a result of this being free, in fact, just like we had with a video iPod introduction a month ago, and they said they sold already a million videos, and it's a slightly different world, so they just use that as a number. This became instantly very successful. Okay, such that now Yahoo is just, is basically distributing uh, their. Uh, Why you point the mic there instead of up at the ceiling? Unlike all the controversy you're hearing uh, with Apple, there's no copy protection. 
But with the Apple iTunes software, it makes it very simple to subscribe to a podcast. Such that you say you want to subscribe, so you say you want to go get it. It will automatically go to iTunes. Every time you plug your iPod in, it will automatically jam your iPod. So the fact that it's called podcasting has nothing to do with anything. It's one of these crazy ideas that some guy had from got fired from MTV that actually turned into something. By the way, Bob, even if I ask a question on another panelist, feel free to jump in. I said it's a joke. Well, I opened it up to him. I, but I, I mean it, and I mean it to, to all of them. The, the one thing I would just add to that is that um, Podcasting is that you do not need to use the app. I mean, Apple iTunes pretty much popularized it when they, when they make it big enough. Just like anything else they do, Apple's very good at uh, jumping in front of a moving cart and then claiming credit for, for a lot of this, uh, the success that happens afterwards. Um, we have to go on record that he is an anti-Apple person who subscribes to Rhapsody, who does not own a podcast, an iPod, and uses a, uh, a creative Zen. I do, I do own an iPod. I just don't use it as much as I used to because I like subscription services better. But, um, <laughs> The, uh, the thing is, though, that you know, Yahoo has a similar system where you can subscribe to podcasts. AOL has a similar system where you can subscribe to podcasts. The whole point, though, regardless of which of those three uh, big ones that are actually doing it, the whole point is that prior to Apple coming out with it earlier this, uh, this summer, you had to be kind of a programmer to make it work. I actually tried it. I was covering the technology. I tried to download one of these free podcast software things and you know, find, us, find the podcast and, and download everything. And I'm, I'm a fairly you know, tech-oriented kind of guy. And, and it, it infuriated me, and so I stopped. And then the, you know, I actually played around a little bit with it when Apple came out with their thing. They had a million in the first two days after they launched their uh, their store. They had five million in July. I'm not sure. Can you not hear me? I can hear you. I just wanted to say that there's iPod X and iPod 11. Right. There's there's several more. And you don't have to you know how to read the they're definitely getting a lot easier. But I, I, one of the things that I would question is whether, while there's a lot of actual podcasts that are out there, um, I'm rather, I'm not very confident how many actual people are actually using and listening to podcasts. And I guess the audience could jump in at any time too. Who's for anybody? Okay, I mean, you're recording on this. Who's doing this? Is there an identifiable group of people who tend to be podcasters, or is this so democratized that you know it's, it's literally everything from big corporations to a kid in his basement? When Apple got in and the other folks got in and actually made a more elegant interface around it, we saw what was called some of the commercialization of podcasts prior to more amateur people kind of running their own little, own little pseudo radio station out of their basements and that kind of thing. Now that it becomes buzzword, um, got, you know, I think I read something about how uh, I think Mayfair's got a podcast about, you know, how moms use their washing machines and things. I mean, it's kind of gotten a little bit ridiculous, really. Sure, I don't know how to say ridiculous. The point is, we have the same thing, except for the copyright issues in music, which are really significant. We have the same thing that's happening in blogs. You know, it's kind of funny how it moves. I was at a conference, tech conference last week, the week before the Laguna Miguel. What's the difference between blogs and having your own homepage? Really, there isn't much. Just we got a little older and they changed some of the terminology. So originally, everybody was going to have their own homepage. Then you had your own homepage and nobody went there and you stopped doing that. Now you have blogs and all of a sudden live journals come over. Now we have MySpace. The bottom line, the nature of society is you want to be connected. The tools are in the hands of the proletariat. But once something becomes popular, there's a huge divergence between what is successful and what is unsuccessful. 
If you know anything about blogs or if you go to iTunes Music Store, you see the, the people with the successful podcasts, especially now five or six months into the iTunes, uh, you know, getting in on this, are things you would have heard of. Major newspapers, major radio stations, KCRW, Ebert and Roper, et cetera, et cetera. That does not mean it's impossible for something to come up, but it, it's basically everybody's doing it, but most people are not listening to the ones in the world. Josh, anybody making any money doing this yet? Apparently not. <laughs> um, there are, um, it, it, just, um, it just depends on how you define making money. I think if ABC News makes its nightly news available in a quote podcast, which you know is really just picking up on a sort of cultural language to tell people, hey, you can go watch ABC News. Um, <coughs> Uh, and by calling it a podcast, people recognize that they can go do that. Because um, now there are audiovisual podcasts, um, and they're uh, capable of being put on the video iPod. So um, if ABC News does that, Kevin, they strip the music, by the way, um, and then they, I mean, other than their work made for hire, you know, bumpers and fillers, uh, and they strip the commercials on the feed, which has always surprised me. I thought the most extraordinary thing about the announcement that Desperate Housewives was sold to um, uh, the iTunes environment at $1.99 was that they stripped the commercials. I mean, why? Why Why not leave them in? I'm sure that people who, who uh, you're shocked, but why Why should pure content uh, go that way? What you, there are commercials in movie theaters. Why can't you have the commercials where they belong? And actually, you know, when you, if you made TV shows, you would know that you make dramatic pauses specifically for the commercials. It's actually a little bit disconcerting if you don't have a pause. Well, because they're not made that way. They're not ended to be in the movies. But, um, but leaving that aside, you know, I thought that was strange because there is a business model there. The point of it is, is that you could actually justifiably make a few extra bucks by saying to your advertisers, you get to be in the network show, plus you get to be, uh, at, you know, part of these dollar ninety nine uh, downloads, or you could have reduced the price of the download. So, but the the bottom line is, is if ABC News is available there. Presumably, it draws you to ABC News later on, Kevin. So, yes, maybe there's a commercial purpose to it. Whether there's an actual transactional benefit from the iPod, none, I don't think, have really come forward. There's some advertising models starting. Maybe you know that. This is insanity. I mean, does anybody, you know, it's just, this is unbelievable. Why don't we get some 15 year olds here? We're telling you they don't listen to terrestrial radio. Okay, if you watch the statistics, you know, they're busy surfing the web. The bottom line is conventional ways people have been fed entertainment suck. They're unbelievable. We have a 22 minute commercial load on clear channel radio. They're reducing it to maybe 18 or 20 minutes. As a result, if you look at the statistics, you know, we think, okay, rock is religion, talk the actors, they're not listening to that. They're listening to the iPod. So therefore, the thing about the podcast is it's feeding that same demand for entertainment that's related to them. It's just, I'm a big fan of satellite radio. It's a little bit of a difference between Sirius and XM. But it's, you're paying the money and you're the customer. Whereas in terrestrial radio, the commercial people are the customer. So that's what the whole revolution is about. 
So therefore, people believe that I know people who are addicted to their podcasts. People who never expect people with three children who are housewives, they plug their iPod in, they would never listen to terrestrial radio. So the model is completely different. As soon as you put the commercials in, nobody wants anything. Look at what's going on in the movies with movie tenders or not. You go, there's like 20 minutes worth of commercials. It's like, go from the mini movie. I don't want to fucking go there. <laughs> then this is a big revolution. Now, I business week this week. You'd be stunned how many people are making money on this. Because if you get, you know, it sounds like a 90s model, but KCRW, they underpriced the uh, sponsorship on their podcast. They're waiting for the contracts went out to get more money. Adam Curry made an amazing deal to have bumpers just at the beginning. It's Isn't that a commercial? Guess, of course, wait, first of all, if you want to split here, you talk about Desperate Housewives with the commercials in the beginning with putting in. Everyone knows in the back of their mind, everyone knows stealing music from the internet via people service is stealing. That does not stop them. You have to look through this. In this particular case, if you put a creative bumper, which I don't want, you know, on something that I do, but people do, people will sit through a little bit, they'll give a little bit as long as you're not abusing them. 22 minutes worth of commercials when they're playing the same damn fucking songs again and again, that's abusing the audience. Well, the thing is though, <laughs> there's still a lot more people listening to radio than are about all listening to podcasts. There's not even a large enough sample for, for analyst firms to even measure the audience. There's been no study done whatsoever that, that can actually accurately measure the podcast audience out there. And I would argue that's probably the coolest thing about podcasting is his name. Podcast. It just sounds good. People want to do it. But there's really not a whole lot out there. The, the thing that people really want out of a podcast is really amusing. Only, only like independent labels are actually able to, uh, are actually willing to uh, participate in the medium because the larger labels still do not want to license or even have anything to do with their full tracks on a download that people can kind of get for free and then use and distribute any way they want. So you know, I think once music is, is full track, full length tracks and from, from major studios as well as from independents are able to be on podcasts, then I think you, you might have more of a point because it would be more people willing to, to, to seek out that type of content. But for the most part right now, there's, there's, no, there's no figures whatsoever to say that, that podcasts are anything more than just you know, a cool name with a lot of people that are doing it, but I, I would argue there's not many people actually using it yet. You know, I do a podcast every week for Rhino Records. I usually talk for 20 minutes. As a result of being Rhino Records, I can play excerpts of songs. Sometimes I don't play any music, okay? Because they don't have the right, Bob Dylan had a great documentary, it's Warner Brothers, Bob Dylan, almost all of his material is on CBS, okay? Thousands of people are listening. I can't believe it. I sit in front of the computer and I'm talking People say, oh, we love it, we love it. I know another friend of mine, she puts it on her iPod, she goes on the stairs, down by 7th Street, down by Santa Monica. So we can sit here and get on our high words and say, doesn't make sense to us. But to the people who are actually using it, make a lot of sense to them. All right, let's talk about music in podcasts for a minute, because I think, given who tends to come to these things, that this is something that there's a lot of interest in this room in. Um, Josh, let me start with you, because this is a legal question as much as anything. You want to put a song in a podcast, technically, forgetting about whether people are actually doing it right now, okay? What are you supposed to do by way of clearance of masters and songs? Well, um, can I preface it with an observation about podcasting, which is quite similar to prior technologies on the internet, such as P2P. You're dealing with an inherent mismatch uh, whenever you ask someone to apply the law to a brand new form of distribution um, that is dependent on both uh, 
software and hardware uh, uh, that was not in existence at the time that the Copyright Act was written. Um, it's very hard to predict the direction that new technologies will go in. So therefore, lawmakers have an enormous amount of difficulty figuring out how to legislate for a future that they can't predict. Uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which you know is the most modern component of the Copyright Act, uh, it says it has the word digital in it, which is you know a substantial advancement given that the word copyright you know tends to be a very analog type of notion. So there's actually the word digital in it. Uh, is nearing 10 years in age because it took so long to pass the DMCA. Uh, that uh, it actually was behind technologically at the point that it was passed. So, you know, I kind of date the DMCA at about 1996. So, podcasting, you know, a term that was just coined uh, less than a year ago, officially, uh, a technology with RSS uh, feeds um, and a way of drawing you to the content. Technically, you go to the server of where the content resides in order to obtain the content. So it's not a broadcast at all, not even remotely, but it's called a podcast nonetheless. Um, it's not something that was ever envisioned. It doesn't fit in any of the definitions under the DMCA. Um, and so, you know, it's a complete total mismatch. So as a technical matter, you need to clear, if you have a piece of commercially released music, you need to clear the master recording in some fashion for a variety of reasons. One, because there may be a digital performance of that master recording, and but maybe not. And two, um, there's certainly a replication of the master recording occurring um, on a sequential basis by everyone who then brings the content onto their computer and then potentially, again, passes it to a portable device. So that replication would require licensing. And the same with respect to the component uh, of the underlying composition, except that there, the performance function um, is uh, perhaps stronger, um, but also questionable. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is that if you actually decide to go out and license music for a podcast, and other than a situation where you're working for Rhino, which by the way may not be clearing the underlying publishing, but um, if, you know, if, if, you, if, if that's what you're doing and you actually want to go clear music, at the moment, the only place you can go to clear music in an efficient way for a podcast is ASCAP and BMI. In CSEC. Well, in CSEC, excuse me. <laughs> um, I, I just, not but the base price at ASCAP is 288 bucks, which is 288 more dollars than most podcasters are spending creating their podcasts. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, it's not exactly priced uh, to sell. Um, you know, it's a, it's, you know, it's a transaction cost type pricing to ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. That's understandable from their point of view, but it, it's certainly unresponsive to the vast preponderance of podcasts, which are not ABC News. Um, uh, you know, the vast preponderance of, of podcasts are still at the hobbyist level. Um, and and uh, from my understanding, the vast volume of podcasts are non-musically related. Let me boil that down then to 
15 seconds or less if, if, I, if I get it. Um, you can put a song into a podcast, but depending on your interpretation of the words in the Copyright Act, you might have to get a performance license, which you can get through one of the organizations, ASCAP, EMIC, SAC, on a blanket basis. Just, a, just for the underlying song. A performance license for the master, which you can't get on a blanket basis. You have to go to a record label or an owner to get it. Uh, potentially a mechanical license for the sequential reproduction of the underlying song. Arguably a synchronization license for both the underlying song and another one for the master because you are synchronizing this thing into a, 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 a podcast. You need a sync license for a radio ad. If it's an audio visual right. podcast, you're very likely going to need a sync license. Okay. Let's, fine. Let's call it a reproduction license. Thanks to Scott. Um, my point is that even if you only got one record label and one publisher per song, which we all know is not always the case, you could have to get four or five licenses from different sources to stick a song into a podcast. What is this going to do if this gets enforced this way to podcasting, you know, as it exists now and under a future business? How does this impact you? Okay, first and foremost, you can trace the podcaster. That's why a great percentage of people are not doing it. Um, but uh, you have to put this as like my favorite Jackson Brown on this. We're a couple of years, a couple of changes behind what's going on with P2P. We have the same thing. I always use the analogy of the Western. Everything we said here, I agree with. My understanding of the law is similar. It's just almost irrelevant. Okay, we have these new technologies. We go back to the people who tend to own this stuff, the record companies. The record companies are bitching in the press every day that they're losing all this money. And first, for about four or five years, they said it's P2P. They changed strategy for the last year. So now it's burning CDs. Even though all the kids don't want to burn CDs, they want the iPod. I would maintain that one of the primary reasons that sales are down is because there's nowhere to hear the music. Okay. There are fewer music stations than there have been in a long time. Top 40 is far from top 40. Top 40 radio today is very heavily urban, uh, which is euphemism basically for rap and hip hop, you know, and uh, R&B. So you can't do this with a record company and the rights holder saying, can't do this. We've already seen the movie before. We don't have licenses for P2P. Internet radio has been stifled by the same problem. The same thing with podcasts. So the more the people on top of the hill say, we're not making a deal, and you know, because it, it opens up new cans of worms with what exactly what we're debating right here, everybody's got a piece of the pie, wants a little bit more of the piece of the pie, and they want to argue about it. And all this is happening is entrepreneurs are creating waves around this. So that you go to a, uh, an independent band site, they have their own podcast. They're broadcasting their own music. And they're slowly eating up. At this point in time, you know, the independents have a significant share of the overall marketplace. So the problem is, is we are saying, how do we shoehorn the present into the past? Why are the people in the past saying, this is very lucrative because people are consuming more music than ever before? And that's the, the, the bit with the, the labels, I'm getting slightly off point, but the analogy applies, is they want to preserve the CD model. CD model's not that good. Very few people buy music. CD sales were at their height, during the height of natural. Obviously there were economic things. The goal is to get everybody consuming music. And everybody, you have an iPod. I don't know anybody who's got, you know, the average person buys a CD a year of that, that's 10 tracks. You go to any kids, you know, he's got a minimum of hundreds of tracks in his iPod, iTunes library. Not so, one of which he bought from iTunes. So in, in this particular case, if we could license music to podcasts, now they just had this in the Netherlands yesterday, 
They basically voted it down. They wanted a, uh, a blanket license, and the rights holders said no. Okay, But we need a blanket license because we'll sell more music and everybody will make more money. We're also going to be in the same case where simultaneously somewhere between 4 and 8 million people are downloading music, which we're never going to collect for right now. So that's why philosophically, I don't believe we agree with it. I would say that, that podcasting represents a, a tremendous opportunity for discovering new music uh, based on several factors. One, it, it, it is, like I said before, it's the difference between going to find the newspaper which is having it sent to you, rather than having to go, I'm a Rhapsody user. You can crucify me later for that. But I love it, I think it's great, I've discovered more new, new music for the, on that than I have through any other service. But I have to go to it and I have to discover a few things. Like, hey, there are some services there where I can go to Playlist Center and it'll show me uh, Playlist. Can you hear me? That's a new one, usually we're telling me to shut up. Sorry. So uh, I go to Rhapsody and there are plenty of playlists that are available for me to just get to browse through and hear new music. I can play a song and then I can say, build a playlist off of this song, describe the music that way, but it requires me to go to it and make that choice. If there was an opportunity for me to, to turn on my computer and have that day's or that week's or that month's playlist recommendations to me based on what my acquired listening history has been, I would discover even more music. It doesn't require me to have to make a conscious choice of going into the store and doing it. It's being sent to me. Two, it's very much a word of mouth. You, you can kind of utilize the, the, the hobbyist, amateur nature of podcasts by having people out there who are just fans. They're not, they're not a radio station who's just trying to play certain songs because it'll sell ads and, and keep listeners like, like to your point, it's just some guy who loves music who's going to put music out of that he loves, not because he thinks it's going to be a commercial success, but because he loves it. So therefore, I'm going to be able to experience new music in new ways from different people who I've never even met and have it sent to me automatically. I can discover a lot that way, but it's very difficult for that to happen right now because of the licensing restrictions that are in place. Now, there are a couple of uh, examples of people that have gotten around this uh, in some very innovative ways. The IODA, Independent uh, Online Distributors uh, Alliance or Association, I always forget what the A stands for, excuse me. But what they have, uh, they've got a uh, deal where they've got, I think, like 300 or 3,000 label, uh, independent labels that are part of their organization that have agreed to have their music be part of sort of a pod safe repository where if you're a podcast, you can go to this, you know all the music that's there is safe and licensed and usable to add into your podcast and then you can uh, do so certain restrictions saying that you've got to have some sort of a buy link, you've got to announce the song before and after it's played, but it's there and I can use it and I can grab it and I can do so. Another way around it is that radio stations have been uh, convincing labels with some success to license the performance of a song within that studio to be used for later podcasts. KCRW is a certain example. There'll be bands there that'll play in the, in the KCRW studio. KCRW will then make that studio performance available as a podcast. I'm experiencing the songs, it's a live performance, but I'm experiencing the songs and then I may buy the uh, album later. Uh, and the other example of that is with um, B2 Records and, uh, and uh, um, XFM in London is another version of that. So there are ways around it, but it, it, it has to be clearly stated that this has great, as much as I was kind of you know giving it a hard time earlier, there's a great potential for podcasts for this discovery capability, but the rights issues have just gotta be worked out. It can't be this complicated. Just the other thing is, are we going to see the same thing in podcasting as we saw in music blogs? If you're unfamiliar, there's been a story for about the last 12 months, just like Anthony was saying, where there's big fans who are not interested in commercialization, he will basically allow you to download the copyrighted music. And the record companies who also see all the PVP services with the records they want to break are looking the other way because these people are breaking records. Now, as there's further iPod penetration, as word gets out, will there be individuals Creating podcasts and the record companies looking the other way because they feel it will sell records. It's an interesting thing to see on the Well, is there a business model 
that anybody's been thinking of, that any of you knows of. You know, I mean, the obvious candidates are you know subscription fees and, and, and advertising. With so many podcasts out there, though, I mean, I try to imagine listening to the radio, and instead of the I don't know thirty stations that I have access to in my car right now, I have you know thirty thousand. I have no idea how I would find the station I want to listen to. And if you can't find a podcast, if you get to the point and it feels like we're approaching that, where there's going to be way more than you can keep track of that are available to you in your market because the world is your market. How do you make a business model that makes any money? How do you drive people to the content? And what's the consequence of that for people who own music that's contained in those podcasts? At some point, don't people stop looking the other way? Don't publishers and record labels stop looking the other way when people are when this is big enough and widespread enough that people are making enough money at it? Um, well, I think making money is big. You're bringing up a number of issues. You're bringing up the issue of yeah. society. Most people don't stop going to the movies because you can't comprehend. Every weekend there's 10 new movies. And they're gone by the next weekend. It's the same thing with records. It's like there's this guy, I'm a real advocate of XM, and I have both because I can talk negatively about serious. There's a guy on a station called The Lost, Channel 50. That guy's my guru. I tune in. I mean, I get everything in my house for free, but he tells me what to listen to. So it's, it's the same thing with podcasts. It's one of the great things about the iTunes Music Store. You have the top 25, top 50. You're going to start there. Then, because we have the internet, you know, it's word of mouth on steroids. And if somebody gets, let me tell you, any record label, if you said, I have a podcast, I have a million listeners a week, can you get me the song? Jimmy Iovine says, Yes. But how do you get a million listeners a week when there's a million of you doing the podcast? It's just like, it's just like blogs. If you want to talk about the Daily Coast, you know, if you want to talk about AndrewSullivan.com, James Walcott, the, the point is, the word about you have it, look at MySpace. Friendster was the place. Friendster is history. And now MySpace is growing. Even though Murdoch bought it, it's unbelievable. Every band, every individual person, it has because you can spread the word so much quicker. And it's different. I mean, we used to go to high school. And once you get out of high school, you're on the loop. You know, if you go to somebody from high school and a computer, they are doing like four to eight IMs at one time. And the information is coming just like that. And they're telling everybody else, and we're all addicted. So the information, we're looking for somebody who's a friend to tell us something. We don't want the machine, because we know the machine is sold out. So if you have a podcast, if you have anything who doesn't have a commercial interest, who really wants to be your friend, then we trust them first. There's also services uh, that you go to, I think MySpace was a perfect example of what you said. If there's certain uh, MySpace friends, people, you know, right now they just list the songs they're into right now, and it's up to you to go and find those songs and listen to them from yourselves, because it may not be a, an easy way to, to experience it directly through MySpace, but to have to have those types of viral, um, I don't want to say marketing, it's not marketing, it's sort of a viral word of mouth type of campaign that digital allows, there's that. It, so the podcast, I think, needs to be, to answer your question, associated with some sort of a trusted environment. Now that might be a brand, like a radio station, or a Rhapsody, or an iTunes. It might be a service, like a, like a MySpace. You know, but just sort of discovering it like out of the ether somehow, you, you're gonna have to, you're right. I mean, some, somehow there's gotta be some sort of an element behind it. So, you know, let's say some, some kid just luckily, you know, had this underground radio station that became a podcast that suddenly generated, say, 100,000 listeners. And uh, a certain label said, you know what, I, I kind of like what this kid's doing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sponsor that. And then they get maybe, you know, 30 second intro spot for the podcast, and, and gives them some more music that he may not be able to get elsewhere earlier. And then, you know, then maybe he's got some marketing power behind it. But to your point, you're right. So there's infinitely more podcasts out there than there could possibly be a successful audience for all of them. But that's the thing about podcasts. They don't, they don't all need big audiences. I mean, some of them just like having their little. 
hey, if I could do a podcast of Mark Andrews music, I know that there were 10,000 people listening a week. You know, I, I, I might be um, kind of special I, about that. I don't know. I'm not sure the model, the business model needs to be thought of and conceptualized in that granular way. Podcast to podcast. Um, uh, whenever you have large quantities of content, the financial model is typically found in the filter. So, um, you know, if you're looking for a financial commercial model that can integrate podcasts, uh, it's probably in an intermediary aggregator doing adjacent revenue models. The same way that Google's revenue model is a model based on making money off of advertising that's adjacent to a search without interfering with the search too much. Does a little bit, but not too much. Um, you know, that kind of model is where my guess would be. You're going to find a revenue model for podcasting, which all the more means that in order to facilitate that model, um, we're going to need to have some form of collective licensing. Uh, and we're going to have to think very seriously in the music industry about a unitary collective license uh, that combines the rights that the user needs to use. The division of mechanicals and synchronization and underlying copyright and master recording copyright are all divisions that come from a world of selling music that is fast being overwhelmed by new worlds in which to sell music. Music is becoming a multiple platform distribution uh, environment. And each of those platforms have their own needs with respect to licensing. It had been a single platform licensing environment. So as business people in the music industry, you need to serve your customers. And part of serving these technology customers is providing a unitary licensing mechanism. That yes, there are a lot of legal issues involved in doing that. Um, I've heard that the music industry is capable of wielding sufficient influence in Congress when it needs to. I've just sort of heard that. Um, and they've done it before. Um, but you know, we need to have a user-centric model in the music business rather than a music business owner model. Uh, as we approach these new technologies, or you're just going to fall through the cracks. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you know um, normally, well, we save the audience questions for the end. You're just dying. To well, say, so please. Because Josh just hit the issue that I really wanted to bring up. So, Derek Barton, to ask you, do you, I mean, I've heard that there was a bill that did not get off the floor, but it's going to come back next year. Now, there's the RIA Well,
Um, well, but, but Josh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Because we are podcasting, which is picking up the feed from the speakers, let me do the, the, the fast summary of the question. Is you know what, given what you're hearing about a bill pending in Congress that would actually cause the formation, I guess, of a unitary licensing entity amongst you, know, ASCAP, BMI, and and uh, and Harry Fox. I, sorry, CSAC, she well, didn't I'm include yourself. Sure So the, the question, the question, the question essentially is, what kind of unitary licensing format could you foresee, like for podcasting, since that's what we're here to talk about, or anything else that wouldn't put half the people in this room, she said, out of business? Well, let me. Uh, I actually just spoke on a panel in Washington D.C. on this. And, uh, the Register of Copyrights was there. There was uh, the lawyer for the uh, Senate Committee of Procedure. Uh, subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee with respect to copyrights on it. And it may surprise you to hear that the actual word unitary license was a word coined by your association, if you're a music publisher, the National Music Publishers Association, in its proposal to the webcasters, uh, to DEMA, uh, with respect to Section 115 licensing and how to deal with Section 115 licensing. Um, and um, What's left out of that is the RIAA piece. So um, the webcasters have made a separate deal, they believe, with the RIAA to their satisfaction for digital performance rights. Uh, and the people who are, quote, not coming to the table, close quote, are the music publishers. Um, you know, there is a enormous rift within the music business as between publishers and owners of master recordings. Um, I don't know, well, and, and, but frequently the rift is within a single corporation, um, you know, which is, makes it additionally frustrating to have to deal with it. Um, and a lot of it is, and there's an enormous rift in collective licensing organizations. Um, it's very, you know, the most intuitive thing to an outsider, I represent tech companies, the most intuitive thing to an outsider is to say, hey, you know, ASCAP's got this really good system, BMI and CSAC as well. And, um, and in this great system uh, for ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, they have come up with a wonderful way of licensing. Um, let's just use that. What's wrong with that? Well, the core thing that's wrong with that uh, is that, of course, ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC uh, engage in a practice of a 50-50 split. That's the core problem. They also still have a sampling system that doesn't pick up all the Well, yeah, but you know what? It's, you're going to need to sample if you're doing collective licensing. That's the bottom line. Well, fine, then. You can own the computer that does the census. Excuse me, I, I, I'd rather this not right. evolve but, into an argument but all I'm saying is as an audience member about unitary licensing because right. it's kind of not what we're here to do. Except that you um, can't have podcasting blossom. You know, uh, and, unless podcasting cannot blossom, the next technology cannot blossom, the next distribution platform can't blossom, unless the music industry reorganizes itself uh, to take advantage of these new user bases and to make money. The, it's all, you know, the other big surprise about these new technologies that it's very hard for money-making businesses such as music publishers and record companies to come to terms with is that so much of it on the tech side is not 
motivated by making money. And that's what I wanted to jump in just right. real quick. You say that, that and please guys, take over. Yeah, these guys couldn't flourish. I'm, I would say that, no, I think they can flourish. I think the P2P experience has shown that they're going to be very good at flourishing. They're just going to do it without the music industry. It's going to happen, right? Digital has made music even more like water than it ever was before. And the more that you try to wrap your arms and try to hold on to this bucket of water when the bucket's been removed, it's just going to get you all wet. You don't have anywhere to go. You've got to change the model to fit the new system. And the new system is this digital system. So innovation happens much quicker than these legal arguments can be resolved. I, I, you know, I don't know much about the licensing issues. I don't cover publishing. I, don't, I, I deal with it from when I cover the technology side of things. And all I can say from what the, the companies that I speak to, it's like listening to Charlie Brown's parents sometimes with, this, with these things. They don't understand what you're talking about. You're making it way too hard. I mean, I come from the wireless industry, and they sit there and look at each other and go, we, we love, to, you know, we can finally sell music now over, uh, over cell phones. That's Prince doing it. But, you know, they've got this dual delivery thing where one uh, song goes to the phone, the other song goes to the uh, computer, and the publishers want a cut of both. That's insane. I, many people will disagree with me with that, but that's crazy. I mean, that, that's what the technology industry sees, and it's like, Either, either, either you know, roll with it or get rolled over. That's that's the warning I have to give because these guys are going to go where with or without you, and the users are definitely going to go whether there's an agreement in place or not. I would also go there. I mean, uh, one of the founders of Napster, the one mentioned, he after Napster died, he would go to lunch with me and he'd say, "What about this model? And what about that?" I said, "Didn't you prove that the only way there's movement is if you steal the music? The RIAA sued to stop the Rio. You know, it's kind of funny with the double talk." Because they stopped the Rio, and then the iPod went from being, you know, anathema to savior to anathema. I don't know where exactly they put it at this particular point in time, but they still say the iTunes Music Store is their savior, which never would have existed if it hadn't been for Napster. And then you have the situation. I don't know if you're ever so there's one guy who's single-handedly pulling back the future of online music. This guy Marty Bandier, the Online Music Publishers. Okay, he won't make a deal. Roger Rains was head of Warner Music. He told me. That he would drop the price of tracks on the iTunes Music Store from 25 to 20 to between 15 and 25 cents. This is 18 months ago. We still ran Warner Music. If Marty Van Deer would go to a percentage, which he wouldn't. So all of these things we've seen so far, you know, the tech companies have more money than the content companies. I don't. I'm not necessarily sure there's going to be a legal solution. I think ultimately there's a business solution. And it's going to take somebody like Jimmy Ivey. Jimmy Ivey, don't forget, at the head, heart of, you know, at the heyday of Napster, he made a deal for Limp Biscuit to be promoted through Napster. The day that Jimmy Ivey, I only say, you know, he's on the front page of the LA Times calendar section today. He's somebody who looks, which way so good and he kind of goes that way. It's just like the record comes from after. Now, Sean Fan with Snowcap is their big friend. So I don't believe there's going to be movement as a result. I mean, if you look what went on with internet radio, Washington, D.C. When it comes to podcasting, when it comes to distributing music, distributing music, it will not be a legal solution. It will be a business arrangement. Whether it be as simple just to go to the music for a second, whether everybody who has an ISP pays somewhere between two and ten dollars a month, Snowcap tracks it, we divide it like ASCAP and BMI, end of story. That's not going to happen in Congress because these guys are bought and paid for. You know, it's not a sexy enough issue, there's not enough money involved. Meanwhile, the record companies and the publishers get hurt. Steve, what do you say? Um, I mean, Valley, please. I've been coming to these things for a couple of years. Anthony, you talked about KCRW having fans come into the studio and having the record companies allow their songs to be podcasted. Uh, Rob, you talked about your Rhino show and using Rhino Records. We're not doing anything about publishers. We keep hearing about how the publishers are holding this business back. You bring up uh, Roger Ames wanting Marty Bandier to lower his percentage. No, 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 
no, no, no, it's 8%. Okay, we're hearing about the record labels now wanting to change the price of an iTunes download from 99 to $1.49. Is the publisher going to get any increase in that, or is it only the record company? You know, music store is a zit on the ass of music. Kevin, can you It's a complete joke. Well, you're basically saying the, the publishers have gotten fucked from day one. Now that there's another day of reckoning, the publishers don't want to get fucked. I'm on your side, not the label side. But when you give, me, give me one second of interruption to repeat the question, which okay. we need to do for every audience question because of, again, the podcast that's, that's recording. Um, yeah, Steve, whatever asking in the bag, is asking, in all of this talk that he's heard, the music publisher seems to be sort of being left out uh, of, of the debate. Uh, when iTunes goes, if they are talking about doing from 99 cents to $1.49, is the publisher going to see any increase, or does anybody care about the publisher, which led you to talk about iTunes being a zit on somebody's ass or something? I believe that the publisher should be absolutely compensated. And we ultimately have a situation that's happening in the UK right now. You know, they want to pay less. And also, in the UK, I was out to lunch with a guy who represents one of the most major artists in the 70s. You know it is, and I said anything more than that. They never asked that guy for any publishing licenses. They just made a deal with iTunes. So I couldn't agree with you more, but the ultimate point is, going back to the iTunes Music Store, in the history of the iTunes Music Store, all over the world, almost three years, they sold a billion tracks. You know, a billion tracks are traded in a month at a minimum. So we're focusing on something where the essence of the problem is not. So I believe there should be, along the lines of what Josh said, we should be licensing the P2P services. I say, you know, the funny thing, you talked about Sprint. It's very important. Do you know that it's $2.50 a track in Sprint? I mean, that's like insanity. Well, the first of all, they said, well, we want our cut. We got to make enough money. And everybody, meanwhile, is just stealing the music. And Sprint gets a dollar twenty-five. And the label is getting, well, the label and publisher combined on a sprint sale, my guess is, is just about at 99 cents. And the publisher gets probably 10 or 12 cents. The publisher is getting a, a, a uh, the mechanical rate. Right. And actually, thanks to a deal made between the RIAA and the NMPA, or the Harry Fox Agency, they're getting the mechanical rate as provided in their original recording contract. So to the extent that there's controlled compositions and reductions, et cetera, blah, 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 those all apply to these new uses as well. And if I could just uh, respond to your question, I don't necessarily have all the answers for, you know, I don't know all the breakdowns. A lot of the, uh, the percentage and the details is something they don't like to discuss, particularly with reporters, and I know that's a shocking fact. But what I will say is that the, the question sort of brings up the point that I was trying to make before, which is that the innovation is happening by, uh, by the technology companies, and now to a certain extent, the label guys. And what tends to happen is all these things start to move forward, and then there's usually some people in the publishing business saying, hey, where's our cut? And what, I'm, what I think what I'm trying to say is that rather than, than watch these things happen and say, hey, where's our cut? There's people that are asking you, hey, get, you know, why don't you get in front of something and kind of offer something that's going to be moving these things forward some more? I'm not saying you're not. I understand that the the response from the people that I am responsible for writing about the technology companies, the people that are into the innovation of digital like digital entertainment distribution, are not saying very much about where the publishers are. They don't know. But, they just don't sort of pops up. And let me speak to that. Front of it. Let, let me speak to that because having been a music publisher uh, in one of my iterations. Um, let me speak in defense of the music publishing industry. 
that is a completely unfair characterization because be of all of the components of the music industry. There is only one component, which is music publishers, uh, who have consistently licensed content rather than withholding content uh, and have always gone to a licensing model whenever possible in all circumstances, which is why at the head of this discussion, when you asked me about licensing in podcasting, Kevin, the answer was there's only one place you can go for a license, which is a publisher composer organization, ask FBMI or CSAC, is the only place that is in fact engaging in proactive licensing in this space. And that you will find that to be the case historically. So they are the last people in the world to be beaten up over this. Um, and, and, and it's grossly unfair to do that. Um, uh, you know, the, the resistance to licensing, you know, is coming from an industry by and large that has never had to engage in licensing before. That's not been their model. And so it's hard for them to learn that. It's going to take them a while to adjust. But they will. Scott, did you have a question before? Everywhere. That's 
terms of creating a business model that works, that's a big issue to large companies. The other point I'm going to make is related, which is the unions. How do the unions get compensated? This is a very important issue in terms of the recorded music that already exists in it, and it's important in terms of how a lot of people make a living in the city and then all over the country. And you've got to find a way to compensate them as well through this. And Scott points out correctly that you have to find a way to compensate the singers who are members of unions, the instrumentalists who are members of unions, even the engineers who are members of unions who get compensated on things like the sale of CDs. So you've not asked any particular questions or given us any answers, but you sure made everything more complicated. And we love you for it. Interesting things, you know, and I'll get to that. In England, in the last week, a record that was distributed free from the internet went number one. That's everybody's worst nightmare. Going back to Scott, this is the record company's worst nightmare because that's how they rip off artists. You get a full rate in the U.S., you get a discounted rate elsewhere. So there's really changes afoot. And as far as the unions go, I think we have to go back to the advent of MTV. When MTV started in 81, the first video was a bundle video, that's an English video. Historically, it's very hard, it's not that hard anymore to get on the radio with a comedy. The way the English acts was great is they'd shoot movies, which American companies said it cost too much money to shoot those movies. All of a sudden, they put these little movies on MTV, and the records were flying out of the stores. Where do we line up? We want to make these movies. And the same thing is going to happen here. When all of a sudden, somebody starts making some money, oh, we want to do that, you know, as far as the union, et cetera. It's about seeing where the money, but the mindset's very interesting. It's basically because the people who are running these companies grant the rights. They are, A, very busy, but they do not have an understanding. You know, it's like when you talk to P2P, have you ever used it? No. I don't have to use it, it's illegal. Well, the first time you go on there, and you find your favorite band, an unreleased track from 30 years ago, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. When you have that experience, then you can understand the new technology. Just like, you know, let's start from the beginning. What sells all these things is sex. At this very minute, all the content companies are very anxious about licensing video with iTunes Music Store. There's a format war, I don't know if you know what's going on, this is behind the scenes, with Apple using their codec to eclipse the Windows codec of Divix. Okay, all the board people, as we see it, are churning this shit out. And the same things happen. When they have the podcast with sex, whatever, things really move in this direction. And the, the movie is repeated again and again and again. The only problem is the record companies and the publishing companies are back in 1999. It's a physical product world. And meanwhile, their revenues are going down. So I really believe that many people, the record companies, they don't want to be the guy at IBM who gave Microsoft a license. They don't want to be the guy looking up saying, you fucked up. They want to be Jerry Levin from Time Warner who made the deal with AOL. As a result, since they're making $10 million, they don't want to be that guy, we have no movement. We have time for maybe one or two more questions from the floor, if anybody has anything that they want to ask. What is happening the rest of the world? Is anybody licensing? Is there any country? The question is, is anybody anywhere else in the world licensing for, I presume you mean for podcasting purposes? Well, um, the last wave of technology was webcasting. That was the last challenge. Um, and webcasting is stalled in the United States. Internet radio is stalled in the United States because of licensing issues. Uh, it's completely unstalled and uh, fully uh, enabled in Canada and throughout the EU uh, through existing collective rights organizations, uh, which are much more robust in the EU 
and much more streamlined in Canada. Uh, I would expect them to be able to adapt a lot more quickly to podcasting than we are able to do. Um, you know, we don't have in this country, in this country, just among the publishers, you have a National Music Publishers Association which does not have consensus representation, so it's very hard to engage in, in, a, in, a, in a rate setting procedure uh, for these new uses. Whereas in Europe, um, in every territory in Europe, you have uh, organizations that are collectively represented, uh, they're legal under their laws uh, to engage in licensing negotiations as a group, uh, so it goes much more quickly. And I can't talk about other uh, countries necessarily, but I just to go back to my earlier point was that the, most of the music that is being done and used in podcasting is either unlicensed or independent music, which frankly is the music that needs and benefits from the exposure podcasts give them the most. I mean, Olympus is not going to have a problem selling the next CD. You know, I mean, you don't need podcasting to get that awareness. They're going to get the awareness. The guys that aren't getting the current media awareness that needs and uses podcasting the most anyway. I might disagree with you about Whip Biscuit, but I take your point. I don't know about you guys, I have learned a lot this evening. And it's been uh, fun and interesting. And obviously, we've got three very divergent approaches to, uh, uh, to what is a new industry. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you, Josh, Bob, and Anthony for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, drive safely. Eric, are you here? I am, yes. Eric, what's the, what's the URL again? So uh, we'll get this uh, up at uh, com. If you want to sit through this again, the audio-only version, or if you have any friends who would like to hear what's going on, ontherecordpodcast.com. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.